Our scripture reading today is from Psalm 50, which is on page 559 in the Black Bibles that are provided for you. In, uh, in Genesis 18, there's this account of Abraham and a conversation that he has with God. So Abraham, it's just some backstory. Uh, Abraham is the man who God chose uh, to be the father of the people of God, the father of um, he and his offspring would be blessed by God's covenant relationship with them specifically. And through them and through that relationship, the world would be blessed. In fact, he was called to bless the world because of his covenant relationship with God. And God had Yahweh, uh, the Lord, had come down because near where Abraham lived was this town, uh, these two towns, this sister towns, where uh, they, there was great evil occurring. And maybe you recall this, this passage. And so uh, God comes down and decides that he's going to tell Abraham what his plans are for this town. And Abraham's nephew lives in that town. Abraham's nephew, Lot. And there's this conversation between Abraham and God where Abraham asks God, uh, would you, what if there were 50 righteous people in this town? Would you destroy the whole town, uh, including the 50 righteous? Like, would you destroy 50 righteous people because of the unrighteous people? And he says, like, surely you would not do that. That would be unjust. And he has this, this sentence, this phrase that he says, he asks God, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Uh, shouldn't the judge of all the earth do what is just? And it would be unjust for God to destroy the righteous because of what the wicked had done. Now, the problem was, uh, as you, maybe you know the rest of the story, he asks about 50, and then he asks, well, what about 40? And he says, well, okay, what about 30? And apparently he knew the town pretty well because he keeps going down, and eventually he says, well, okay, what about 10? What if you find 10? And all along, God says, no, no, I won't just, if, if there are 10, for the sake of the 10, I'll spare the wicked, which is an, um, like it's a mind-blowing, gospelicious moment where we realize are you telling me that the righteousness of 10 people could be counted to cover the unrighteousness of this number? And God says, yeah, I could do that. Now, the trouble is, there weren't 10. There weren't five. There wasn't one. And that's where we're supposed to be left in a quandary. But um, in one sense, Psalm 50 is sort of a, a creative or poetic or artistic uh, imagining of God coming to earth again, like he did against Sodom and Gomorrah, if God were to come to the earth, come to earth as judge. And, and the question as we read Psalm 50 that we ought to be asking ourselves is, what if the judge of all the earth were only just? What if the judge of all the earth were only just? So let's stand for the reading of this psalm, Psalm 50. 
This is a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So as we unpack Psalm 50, uh, along with the question of the title, I want you to be thinking about this. Um, has your, has, has Jesus become either unnecessary or unwanted in your Christianity? Has Jesus become either unnecessary or just undesired in your Christianity? Uh, mainly what we're going to be looking at in this psalm is, this un is the reality that, that there are two ways that we can avoid or seek to avoid God in our lives. Uh, one is through religion without relationship, 
and the other is through rebellion against that relationship. So uh, we can seek to avoid God through our religious activity, and we can seek to avoid God through our rebellious activity. And so uh, what is the need? What, what is needed then by both the religious and the rebellious? But before we get into that, the first, the first seven verses are just a, a setup. They're just laying out the setting for us. Uh, and we are introduced immediately to uh, the mighty one, God, the Lord, uh, the mighty one. He is the creator and sustainer of all life. He is God. He alone is God, but he is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. He's not just uh, this unreachable, untouchable God of the universe. He's the personal, made himself known, revealed himself, saved his people from slavery, brought them out of slavery into his light and into his kingdom. That God, that God who promised, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will be with you. Uh, That God who is with us has come and has summoned the earth to bear witness And so, uh, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the whole earth is being called to bear witness. So, it's it's sort of setting up this this courtroom scene. And so, the earth is now uh, a witness. They are there watching, observing these courtroom proceedings. And we're told that God himself is the judge. He comes, uh, he comes out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Now, what was it that made Zion the perfection of beauty? Zion, Mount Zion, is the place where Jerusalem was. It's the place where the temple is built. Why, what made Zion the perfection of beauty? And it wasn't anything other than God's presence himself. It wasn't God's people that made Zion beautiful. It was God's presence that made Zion beautiful. You know, what makes the moon glow? It's it's not the moon itself, but it's the moon's reflection of the brightness of the sun. What, What makes a lantern bright? A lantern in and of itself isn't bright unless there's a light within the lantern that shines out of the lantern that others can see. God says he comes like a shining light, like a, a devouring fire, a mighty tempest. These are, this is language of judgment. In light, you know, darkness dispels. Darkness can't abide. In fire, it purges and cleanses and purifies. It burns off all that isn't true. And he comes in this tempest of judgment. God calls all of creation in verse 4 to this courtroom as a witness. And he says, and I am the judge. He says, I've come. He says, says, I have come that I may judge. And if we, you know, if, if if the writer wanted to use like suspense, it would have He would have turned the page there. God comes as judge because all of us are ready for God to come as judge against those people, whoever those people are. We can't wait for God to come in judgment against those people. And here we are told God comes to judge His people. 
Gather to me my faithful ones, the ones who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God is coming to judge his own people, or at least his so-called people. The very people who have made a covenant with God, he's coming to judge. And we look in the courtroom setting, and it's nearly full, isn't it? We've got the judge up at his, up at his I don't even know what it's called. The, the, it's not a pulpit, but his podium. The judge is there. The witnesses are, are there to watch. All of creation is watching. And there we are, God's people, in the defense block. So who's going to bear witness? Who will bear witness against the people? Who's going to prosecute it? It can't be creation. It can't be those wicked people out there, can it? And then verse 7 drops it on us. Hear, my people, I will speak. I will testify against you. God himself is not just judge, but he is the key witness and the accuser. He has a case to bring against us. How frightening would it be to be in court on trial and have the judge say, call your first witness, and the judge himself slides over to the witness stand and says, you know what, I'm, I'm the first witness. So I'm the judge, and I'm the witness, the eyewitness, in fact, against you. So how do you think you're going to fare in this trial? You'd probably start getting rightfully nervous. And God brings two cases against his people. First of all, that they are approaching him through religion without relationship in verses 8 to 15. God makes a case against his people. If we were numbered among God's people in this courtroom, we might be wondering, well, what is the problem? I don't understand why he's calling us here. I mean, we, haven't we, I mean, he, we've done everything he's told us to do. I mean, we're offering these sacrifices. We're offering, we're doing the feasts. We're doing all the things he told us we needed to do. God even says, it's, it's not for your sacrifices that I rebuke you. In fact, it sounds a little sarcastic, doesn't it? Your uh, burnt offerings are continually before me. And they're thinking, well, yeah, it's what you wanted. He says, you know, the bulls, the goats, the birds of the sacrificial system, I, I don't want them. And our thought would be, what? well, you're the one that asked for them. What do you mean you don't want them? He says, yeah, I don't need your sacrifices. What do you mean God doesn't need our sacrifices? God asked for the sacrifice. I have it listed right here. It's very specific. This is what I want. Yes, but I don't need them. They're not for me. Your sacrifices were never for me. Well, you're the one that told us to do it. And if they're not for God, then who are the sacrifices for? You can interact. You can pretend we're Baptists here today. Us. Yeah. If it's, there's, only two, there's only two groups in this situation. It's the people 
and there's God. And if the sacrifices were never for God, that means they were for us. They were always intended to speak to us, not speak to God. And then God kind of lays out the logic of it all. He says, listen, I own the wild beasts. They all belong to me. I own the forests and the jungles. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. And as my pastor used to put it, and he's not a tenant farmer. He owns a thousand hills also. God owns every bird. I mean, think about that. God owns every bird. If God was looking for a bird for sacrifice for himself, something that he would be pleased with, really? Two pigeons? You think that's what he's after? He owns eagles and albatrosses. He owns emus and ostriches. I mean, that's a sacrifice. If you can't afford a goat, bring me two emus and just put them on the... That's a, that's a bird worthy of God. And he's like, no. Do you, do you think I want pigeons? And then he even goes even further. So do you think I eat this? Do you think I drink? Do you, like, what, do you, what are you thinking about these things? If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Well, what does God want then? What is he after? In verses 14 and 15, he tells us clearly, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. Outer religion, like religious activity that doesn't flow from the heart of a relationship is hypocrisy. Going through the motions of religious activity without a relationship with God is hypocrisy. See, religion without relationship essentially says, I do these things and God is then obligated to do things in return. I follow the rules. God, there are certain rules God then has to follow. There's no need for thanksgiving. Actually, that's not true. God should be thankful. I mean, I've done all the things he asked me to do. He should say thank you, and he should bless me then. But God has said all throughout, even the Old Testament, it was never an outward religion only. It was never about the sacrifices. Hosea 6.6, I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God, not burnt offerings. In other words, steadfast love. It's that covenantal love. Like, what I want from you is a covenantal love in return for my covenantal love for you. I'm not looking for sacrifice. I'm, I'm looking for knowledge of God, not just head knowledge, but like intimate knowledge. I know God. He knows me. That's what I want more than burnt offerings. In Psalm 51 that we looked at last week, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Amos 5, if, if the rest are just sort of, if, if, if you don't hear it yet, hear it in Amos 5. I hate I despise your feasts. 
This is God speaking. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I won't accept them. The peace offerings, you, your fattened animals, I won't even look at them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps I will not listen to. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Don't come to me with your songs and your sacrifices and not, not a hint of a changed heart. In Micah 6, it's these, these questions of like, well, what should we do? Like, like what, what should I come before the Lord with then? With what should I bow myself before God? Shall I, shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Should, should I give my firstborn? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then there's the answer. He's shown you. He's shown you, man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with God. Religious people are not thankful because you're in a you're in a uh, consumerist, you're in a, you're in a bargain, a trade agreement with God. I will do these things, you will do things in return. There's no thanksgiving in religion without a relationship. Religious people find religious ways out of the requirements. He says, you know, fulfill your vows to me. Religious people find loopholes and tricks and ways like, well, I, I, don't, I don't actually have to do that. Okay, yes, I made this vow, but, but that nobody, he, you didn't understand. You don't understand my situation. Religious people don't call on God for help because they know they can help themselves. And because when days of trouble come, when you're a religious person, it can only mean one of two things. One, God has not noticed all that you have been doing and so, is he really worth worshiping because he's not taking care of things? Or, you're not doing enough. Like God is noticed, and he's unimpressed, and you need to step it up. You need to increase. Like You do need to find the emu instead of the pigeon. Like you gotta, like, obviously, God is angry at you, and you need to do better. How many of us, how many, like, you don't even have to raise your hands. I'll raise my hand for you. How many of you, something went wrong, something is hard, something is difficult, and your first thought is, I should be praying more. You know what? I, I am not, I need to read my Bible more. It's like, okay, so first of all, true. True. Probably never a time in a human's life that they have said, I should be praying more, and God's like, really, no, you're fine. <laughs> no, you really should be. But praying more, why? Because something was hard? And like, oh, obviously God made this hard because I haven't been praying, so I should pray. He'll make it easier. This can go away. Ironic, isn't it, that we turn to God so that He will end the situation that caused us to turn to Him. 
God, the moment you stop this, I'll stop bothering you. <laughs> and God's like, okay, well, so I don't know if you hear it, but this will never end <laughs> because these are the only times you and I have a conversation. So we're just going to keep going here. Religious people don't seek God for help. God says, do you know what would honor me? Ask me for help. I'll deliver you and you'll glorify me. Could God come today and accuse you of outer religion that has no root in a relationship with him? Do you think God owes you because of the religious activity you've been doing? Do you mistrust God because of uh, the days of trouble? So imagine, imagine a husband comes home to his wife and he says to her, honey, I love you and, and I want, uh, I just want to, I want to, I want you to just rest. I want you to rest knowing how much I love you. And so uh, what I want to do is I want to take you on a date once a week uh, just for you and me, for you and me to just, for you to rest, for you to just be able to relax. And, and, to, and to help with that, I've written you a letter about my love for you and about how you can understand my love for you. And at that date, every week, I will, I'll explain some part of that letter to you. I'll, I'll help you understand it better so that you understand how much I love you and how much I'm for you and so that our relationship can just can flourish, can thrive. No matter what else is happening, we will have that relationship going on. Like what wife just wouldn't, wouldn't melt, wouldn't love, wouldn't be amazed that she has got the guy that not only wants to talk about his love for her, but has written her a letter telling her about his love for her and wants to spend time with her. It's the trifecta. It's the amazing. Like every other woman is going to be jealous. Imagine how bizarre it would be if at some point in those weekly dates, the wife seems, I don't know, distracted. Like he's explaining to her something in his letter and she's like looking at her phone. She's thinking about, well, there's other things to do after this, right? So after this date, I got to do this and that. Or, or maybe at one point, He's explaining something in the letter, and he looks across the table, and she's sleeping. Like, she's sleeping, and, and he wakes her up, and she's like, what? I'm here. I'm here. And she says, you know, it would be easier. Have you noticed this background music? I don't like it. Like, if you want this date to go well, there should be different music. Because this music isn't doing it for me. It doesn't really help me feel your love. Or the next week, she says, she's sitting there, and as he starts talking about his love for her, she says, is there a children's menu? There should be a children's menu, because really, that's the most important thing, is how you relate to my children. Because, like, if, I mean, if there's no children's menu, it's not really even worth going on a date with you. 
This goes on week after week. Finally, uh, the husband gets a little annoyed, and now the wife is beside herself in the indignation. Dude, you wanted to go on these dates. These were your idea. Here we are. We're on a date. You said once a week. Here I am once a week. You said you want to talk about your letter, so you talk about your letter. And he says, well, have you read my letter recently? She's like, why would I read your letter? You're going to talk about it for 40 minutes at, on our date. What would be the point of reading it? Okay, no, I haven't read it. I haven't read your letter in a while. I do have, though, several copies of it. I have one copy that is just, it's easier to understand. I mean, you write, and it's like, what? I don't even understand what you're saying. But then this guy has reworded everything you said, and oh, it just, now I get it. Now I understand. I have another copy that it's not just your words, it's other people's words about your words. And so when I don't understand what you're saying in your letter, I just read theirs, because I get more out of what they say. Also, I have several t-shirts with sentences from your letter on them. And I've chosen a couple of key phrases and words from your letter and have had them translated into Chinese characters. And I am going to have them tattooed on my body to show how much I love your letter. And the husband says, I I, I didn't ask you to do that. And the wife says, I know. You're welcome. Wouldn't that be weird? That would be a weird relationship. Doesn't that feel like that would be a weird relationship? It feels like it would be weird to me. But how many times do we just show up? We come to church. It's once a week. We figure, what's the point in reading the Bible? Some dude's going to wax eloquent or not so eloquent for 40 minutes on it. Imagine also, here's a new one. Like, at the end of the meal, she says, you know... That was a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. Is that going to be a regular occurrence at these weekly dates? God says, I love you. You're my people. But you have turned our relationship into a religion. But there's two ways to be a hypocrite. God then turns and focuses on our rebellion against relationship. In verses 16 to 21, he says, To the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? I used to read this and assume it's, he turns to the unbelievers. But this idea of what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? These are people who are claiming a covenant relationship with God. And he says, You have no right to that. You hate discipline. What in your life would indicate that you and I have a relationship at all? You hate discipline. You throw my words behind you. You see a thief and you're pleased with him. I mean, aren't you glad that as Christians we don't, you know, we don't look at people who live in ways that aren't in accord with God's word and God's uh, instruction, and, and, and we're like, okay, well, we probably shouldn't, we probably shouldn't like just throw all of our support behind him because there's nothing that indicates that he's a person worthy of just lockstep blind support. You see a thief and you're pleased. 
You keep company with adulterers. Your own mouth, it, it has free reign for evil. Your tongue builds, it, it premeditates and plans out deceit. You even sit and speak against your brother, your own mother's son. How many of us are very excited, or at least all too willing, to speak out against our brothers and sisters? He says, you do these things, and I've been silent, and you assume it's because I'm just like you. But I'm not. I rebuke you to your face. I lay my charges against you. You know, Jesus gives this warning in Matthew 7, the, uh, the, this idea that like, hey, uh, I, I, I called you Lord once. You know, it's not just an Old Testament thing. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I'll declare, I I never knew you. Depart from me. See, either God has, has, has offered you a covenant by sacrifice, a relationship with you by sacrifice, and not just, not just sacrifice of the Old Testament sacrifices, because again, those were for us to see our need for forgiveness, our need. They were for us to understand that the sacrifice that God was going to make for the covenant would be His own Son. God has created you and sought you and offered you His Son in order to save you from yourself and from your sin and from the world. And if God has done that, then He has earned your gratitude. He has earned your faithfulness, your devotion. He's earned the right to be the only one you call on in your day of trouble. Because either that God is real and worthy of thanksgiving and devotion and submission, or He's not real, And this is a ridiculous gathering. The need of both the religious and the rebellious is in verses 20 and 22 and 23. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So has Jesus become an unwanted guest in your Christianity? Do you think he is obliged to give you good things because you've gone through some outward motions of religion, but your heart is far from him? Do you think he ought to think so highly of you even though you think so lowly of him? You prayed a prayer once when it seemed like it would please your parents or your teacher, but you've never once thought, what does it look like to, to live as a saved, redeemed child of God?
I mean, what do you do? What do you do then? Do you find yourself firmly planted in one of these two camps? Or are you more, maybe you're more like me, and you just kind of waffle back and forth between religious and rebellious. You know, religious, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. God didn't do what I thought he was going to do. All right, fine, I'm going to rebel. I'm going to go and go. And it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to do, and I'm going to do, and I'm going to do. Wait, wait, no, he didn't do what I wanted him to do. I'm going to rebel, I'm going to rebel. And you just kind of, you're like, you're walking back and forth on this teeter-totter. We use our religion to manipulate God, and when that doesn't work, we rebel and ignore God. And what, so what should God do to ask Abraham's question? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Because here's the thing. God is just, but he's not only just. God is never unjust, but He is often merciful. What do you do when you come to the end of Psalm 50 and find that you've also come to the end of yourself and realize everything in this psalm is about me? You turn In fact, literally, you turn, you turn the page to Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, not, not mine, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. We turn and repent and see, again, it wasn't the blood of goats and bulls because they would never satisfy. They would never be enough. They were for us to see our need for a greater final sacrifice in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, you, you are the God of the covenant. You are the God of relationship with us. And we have so often turned that covenant, that relationship, into just empty religion. We use uh, works and deeds and even uh, worship to try to oblige you to ourselves. We rebel against your word and your holiness. We presume upon your silence. We know that we deserve nothing less than your judgment. And yet you have poured that judgment onto your son for us. the judge of all the earth who is just is merciful. The judge who is also our key witness against us is our Father. 
thank you, Father, for adopting us to be your children. Thank you, Jesus, for the work you did to save us. Give us thankfulness in our hearts. Help us to follow you and trust that you will show us your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.